All right, guys, um, so we are continuing our series. We have two weeks. What we're going to do is we have two weeks in, uh, in the book of Romans, and this mini-series is being called Relate. Uh, then we'll do kind of a vision-y Sunday to kind of share what's going on coming up for this year. Um, but for these next two weeks, we're going to close out Romans chapter 12, all right? We're going to look at Romans chapter 12, verses 14 to, to 21. And what we've been doing in this series, so we've been in one big series called Gospel Depth, which is looking at the entire book of Romans. And that's where the Apostle Paul, an early church leader, he laid out the way that God um, has set, made a way for us to be reconciled, humanity to be reconciled to God and the effects of that in our lives, uh, both in how we relate to God and now, from Romans 12 to 15, how we relate to one another. And so we've been looking at this series called Relate, How We Relate to One Another. And one of the things that we've been talking about is kind of a theme these last few weeks is this idea that in the New Testament, hands down the most dominant metaphor for the church is family or household. And the most common way they, uh, that people in the New Testament refer to one another, other Christians, are brothers and sisters. And we know one member of, of the Trinity, the God, has, is, has been revealed as Father, Another one as son. In the book of Hebrews, it says in the book of Hebrews it says that uh, Jesus is our older brother if we put our faith in him. And so we we basically been saying, hey, if the church is a family, how does that family live? There's different levels. Uh, there's different types of family. If you ever spent the night at someone's house growing up, uh, you might have got a, like, well, this is very different than my family in a positive way or a negative way. I don't forget the first time I spent the night at the Pinello household, and they ate dinner at a table. And it just blew my mind. Like, guys, we're t you're talking to your mom. Talking to your dad. Your dad lives here. And, and just go, okay, there's different values at work. And so, so what values does this family have? And so, again, Romans chapters 1 through 11 is answering the question, how do we relate to God because of the gospel? And Romans 12 to 14 is mostly answering the question, how do we relate to other humans on this side of the gospel? Has it changed the way that we relate to one another? And so we've been looking at this idea of family values. What are the family values of the church? And so five weeks ago, earlier in Romans 12, we looked at this idea of patience. Patience for ourselves and one another as we change in kind of messy, painful, slow ways. Four weeks ago, I taught the first half of Romans 12, verse 13, on the value of generosity about being a healthy, interdependent family. We don't want to be codependent where we cannot do anything on our own, and we don't want to be independent where we live lives on our own, but we want there to be a healthy interdependence where we express needs, we do our best to meet each other's needs in healthy ways. And then three weeks ago, I finished the other half of Romans 12, 13, specifically the part of the verse that talks about the value of hospitality, that we'd be a, a, a family that welcomes others in, that we wouldn't be a family that's keeping others out, but that we'd be a family that welcomes others in. And then two weeks ago, I taught Romans chapter 12, verse 15 on the, the church's value of empathy. The idea of rejoicing with those who rejoice and, and mourning with those who mourn. And this week, I'm going to teach on two other values. We've got three more values. Um, this passage today, grace is, is a key idea. And there's kind of two aspects to grace. There's both peace and forgiveness. I think forgiveness is too weighty of a, to uh, too weighty of a topic or a value to make as like one point of three. And so next week we're gonna do an entire sermon on forgiveness. Okay. But this, this text, it's, it's, I don't want to say it's like AMPM, but it is too much good stuff. There's a lot of overlapping stuff in terms of how we treat each other and the different values Paul's espousing here. But this week we're going to talk about the, the family values of grace and peace, peace and grace, uh, which leads me to, uh, to today's outline. Okay, I have a, a couple different I ideas. Uh, the first one is this, is that we are called to live at peace 
with all people. We are called to live at peace with all people. Number two, a lack of peace should only be because of our commitment to goodness. A lack of peace should only be because of our commitment to goodness. Number three, a lack of peace should not be because of our badness. A lack of peace should not be because of our badness. And number four, when the badness, I know these, these words are rough, when the badness of, they're real words, just, it sounds a little silly, but, but I think they're helpful. When the badness of others disrupts our peace, our response to them should be one of grace. When the badness of others disrupts our peace, our response to them should be one of grace. And by the way, grace is scandalous when it's for real. So let's read today's text, Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 16, this idea of grace and peace. Paul writes this, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. This, this even applies to social media. This even applies to family gatherings at holidays. This even applies to enemies, as we're going to see. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And so uh, point number one is this. We're called to live at peace with all people. Disciples of Jesus are not called to be people who are constantly running into controversy, stirring up conflict all the time. We shouldn't be the, 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 the loudest, most annoying people ever. However, we are not always able to avoid conflict or controversy because of convictions we may have as disciples of Jesus. And Paul makes that pretty clear here. Uh, number two, uh, it kind of gets to number two, a lack of peace should only be because of our commitment to goodness. A lack of peace should only be because of our commitment to goodness. Paul acknowledges almost immediately after he calls us to live at peace with all people that it isn't always possible in a fallen world to be at peace with, with everyone. Again, we see this inference at the end of verse 18, as far as it depends on you, meaning peace does depend on multiple parties. If it's a relationship between two people, it depends on both people for peace to fully be there. So there are circumstances where peace can't happen, but it shouldn't be because of you. You're a follower of Jesus, he's saying. If it's because of you, you should be repenting and apologizing and owning and moving forward. But you cannot value peace over holiness. You cannot value peace over truth. Because even if you want to do the right thing, the good and beautiful thing, others might demand that you do a bad thing or refuse to acknowledge the bad thing that they have done. And, and so we should seek to live at peace with people as long as that peace doesn't cost us our holiness or our obedience to Jesus. In Romans chapter 12, verse 9, it says this, it says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. And in a fallen world, there are people who love what is evil. And so there will be times where it's, you're going to struggle to be at peace with those people. 
Uh, author uh, Rebecca Pippert says this. She says, true love detests whatever injures or destroys those we love. True love will protest against whatever threatens to bring harm to our beloved. If a little girl disobeys her mother's instruction to stay away from moving cars and instead chooses to run into a busy street, the mother will scream and attempt to stop her behavior. The mother will express anger not because she doesn't love her daughter, but because she does love her dearly. It is a language of a loving concern aimed at protecting her from her own foolishness and self-destructive behavior. Likewise, if a young man is destroying himself through substance abuse, his father will despise the alcohol or the drugs that have him around the neck. The father will do everything within his power to fight against his son's self-destructive choices and behaviors, not because he is opposed to his son, but because he is for his son's sobriety and health, kind of thriving. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates in him the drunkard, the liar, the traitor. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is, and the final, final form of hate is indifference. Sometimes anger can be the highest compliment and the deepest assurance that someone cares for us. This is true especially when the anger directed towards us comes from someone who aims to protect us and make us into the most life-giving versions of ourselves. Close quote. Because we love people, we're called to hate what God calls wrong or evil. So we cannot have a peace that is rooted in lies or disobedience. If you're at peace because you're calling what is evil good, which we're asked to do all the time by all kinds of people in a fallen world, or calling what is good evil, that is not real peace. If people aren't at peace with you because you are doing good, uh, right, you're not at fault in the, as much as it's up to you uh, paradigm. Again, I used to think that if someone was mad at me, um, it meant I was wrong, right? And by the way, th that's the easiest person in the world to manipulate. I was ve very manipula manipulatable, uh, very easy to manipulate. You get the idea. Because I thought, man, if someone's mad at me, it's because I'm at fault. If someone's upset with me, it's because I'm wrong. And it could be that, yeah, my actions have caused them to be angry with me, but my actions could be very good, Again, um, sinful people have no problem being furious with those who are doing right. Again, kind of like we were talking about two weeks ago, I was living in enmeshment, not empathy. And so if someone was mad or I go, oh, I got to fix this, it's my bad. Someone's like, how could you do this? I'm like, how could I do this? And then I'm like, how could I do a rational, kind, loving thing? <laughs> in hindsight, but in the moment, it didn't feel that way. In other words, if someone had negative, bad emotions towards me, it was because I had done something wrong in my paradigm. Now, since then, I've talked to, to, to counselors and spiritual, director, spiritual directors and godly friends who have helped me to see that that wasn't always true. Now, sometimes I had done something wrong. Okay, just to be clear, this isn't like an all day, I, I never do anything wrong. Uh, there will be times where you're not at peace with someone and it is your fault. Okay? Uh, someone whose fault it never is is an unsafe person. Okay? Um, and there was times I did wrong and I need to repent. But other times, I didn't have a paradigm for this other thing, though. There were other times where I was doing right and those doing wrong were upset about it. Again, you'll see this dynamic in your life if you're walking with Jesus. That to stand for goodness could lead to a lack of peace. For example, uh, you might have come from an abusive family and in adulthood, you've decided to set boundaries that communicate, that you've communicated in a loving, respectful way 
They're not designed to, to punish your family of origin, but they are designed to protect you and your children from harm. Now, your family may mock or judge you or reject you, and you might not feel at peace with them, but, but it's not because you haven't done what depended on you to have peace. You might have someone who loves to gossip with you, kind of ruin someone's reputation behind their back, and, 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 you, and, 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 and you don't want to judge them, but you want to change in this area. You want to be healthy in this area. You want to follow Jesus. You don't want to gossip. You don't want to triangulate. You don't want to do that way of conflict anymore. And you go, actually, you know, I, I want to build people up when they're not around. I don't want to tear them down or, or um, mar their reputation when they aren't here. I want to be the opposite type of a person. And, and you might move towards them kindly and respectfully and gently. You may say, hey, listen, I know we did that. We had this thing where we'd like talk trash about people. And it's kind of addictive because self-righteousness is, is addicting. And I love being the victim and I love being right. And I love like, you know, someone who's just like kind of gassing me up with how right I am in a scenario. But I don't want to be about that anymore. And so, so, so moving forward, I, I, I don't, I'm asking you not to do that around me. And and, and, and I also want to ask you to hold me accountable if I do that in your presence. And, and I've actually seen this in scenarios where some friendships were actually built on having a common enemy or a common scapegoat. And the minute they couldn't tear someone down, there wasn't anything left relationally. That would not be your fault, again, as much as it depended on you. You're like, hey, I want a friendship, but I don't want to do that. You may have experienced abuse in relationship. I need to get law enforcement involved, maybe even file a restraining order. That's not unloving. A, an unhealthy, sinful person will have no problem telling you that you're in the wrong for, for getting help or, or, or seeking out justice. Uh, Brad Hamrick in, uh, writes in his excellent book on forgiveness. Guys, it's one of the best books I've ever written on any aspect of Christian living. It's been blowing my mind the last week. I'll probably quote it 10 times next week. Just on like how to have healthy relationships. Uh, it's called Making Sense of Forgiveness by Brad Hambrick. He gets into emotional health and boundaries and forgiveness. It's just, it's so good, man. He says this, when people do dangerous and illegal stuff, the godly response is to call the police. When people are abusive, is it God-honoring to get a restraining order? But many people ask, isn't that punitive, like you're punishing them instead of being loving? The answer is no. It is loving in two ways. First, it limits the amount of damage this person can do to themselves, their reputation, and others. Second, it is an attempt to wake them up to the severity of their actions. Criminals, i.e. those who commit crimes, who get upset at people who call the police are being manipulative. The person who made the choice to call the police doesn't ruin someone's life. The person who made the choices that warranted calling the police disrupted their own life. Their life will not be on the path to wholeness until they can acknowledge this. But it might not feel like peace is what I want you to catch, but it's absolutely the right thing to do. You might have someone, uh, you know, you're dating someone and they communicate, hey, I can't feel connected to you emotionally unless we're sexually intimate. And you're like, I'm a follower of Jesus. We're not married. Um, and, and I want to honor Jesus' teaching on human sexuality and flourishing by refraining from premarital sex. They might be real angry with you. They might say, I thought you loved me, but it's not, you, it's not that you're not living at peace with them. That's a choice they are making. You might have people who are upset with you because you believe Jesus when he says he's the only way to God. Again, that should be communicated graciously and respectfully and kindly, and the opposite of self-righteously as possible, because Jesus is the hero, not you. 
But if they're upset with you for that belief, you have done as much as it's up to you to live at peace with all people. We've had people leave our church because of what we've communicated regarding uh, racial injustice over the past two years, or what we've communicated on the other end on sexual ethics the last few years. It might not feel peaceful at times with some of those people, but it's, it's, I really do believe in those scenarios, as much as it was up to us, we were doing the best that we could. Again, we see this at societal levels over the years as we pay attention to some of the greatest justice and mercy leaders the church has ever produced. Uh, Martin Luther King uh, had a lot of problems with a lot of people. Some of them were his fault, but, but most of them at a popular level absolutely were not. Uh, the white power brokers who were actively oppressing African Americans during the Civil Rights era didn't feel like they were at peace with Martin Luther King. He advocated for nonviolence and never sought to injure them. But they felt threatened by his perspective and his righteous demand for equality under the law for African Americans in this country. But he was not trying to harm them as much as it was up to him. He was living at peace with them, though that relationship didn't feel peaceful. Another example is uh, Mother Teresa. Uh, again, you're like, who doesn't love Mother Teresa, right? Like, pretty, pretty nice, right? Like, the epitome of kind of a godly grandma, like, and, 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 and next level. Lays her life down for 50, 60 years with the poorest people in the world who could not pay her back. So that she might express love and compassion, that, that, that people might die with dignity, that orphans might be cared for. She gives her life to that work. And in 1994, have a wild moment in her life, she was invited to the United States. Uh, this, this is a quote from a book here. In 1994, she was invited to the United States by the proudly pro-choice President Bill Clinton to give the keynote speech at the National Prayer Breakfast. In that speech, she channeled her own God-given hatred for what was evil by boldly and courageously speaking against the termination of image-bearing children in the womb. Barely visible from behind the podium due to her small stature, she said, if we accept that a mother can kill even her own child, how can we tell other people not to kill one another? Abortion leads to more abortion. Any country that accepts abortion as a moral good is not teaching its people to love one another, but to use any violence to get what they want. The prophetic nun then looked toward the president at the head table and pleaded with him, to stop terminating children in the womb and to give them to her instead. As many in the crowd erupted in applause, the president and vice president and their wives sat uncomfortably at the head table. One leader remarked afterward that Mother Teresa's words were as bold a prophetic confrontation as we've ever witnessed. Now again, some of you guys have committed abortions and Jesus died to forgive you, but it still is wrong, right? And so we go, we love people who are, we, we're all sinners who need to be loved. But, but sin is still sin. And because we love people, we want to we protect people from it. Um, and, and this is so important. Like, one other aspect of this thing, man, again, like, we can't live at peace <laughs> always with, 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 with whoever's on the other, other side. But, again, as much as it's up to us. I remember one time as a church, um, we were uh, renting a space. It wasn't Hardyhood. Uh, take it easy. We were, we were renting a space. And uh, honestly, we had a landlord who was taking advantage of us, um, and um, and it was pretty rough. Like they were, they were taking away a lot of our spaces, and uh, they wanted to charge us full rent. And they basically were telling us we had to leave, but they weren't. It, it was it was rough. 
And um, and I'll never forget it. Like we we got the contract, and there's a lawyer at Restored LA who helped us, who does leasing, and, and he looked at the contract. And uh, and so basically, what happened was is they 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 offered us like a, a, another part of the facility for us to use on a Sunday, and it was already we already had access to that <laughs> on the Sunday. And uh, and so basically, what was being communicated by the landlord was like, hey. Um, it's no big, like, it's just, it's kind of a, uh, you know, misunderstanding. We'll, we'll work it out. We'll work it out. Like, well, it's not working out though. Like we're paying you and you're not giving us what we paid for. And, you know, this isn't cool. And I really wrestled because I didn't want to get into like a crazy back and forth with someone. I represent, I'm a pastor. I represent the church in the meeting, but I don't think it's right for us to be taken advantage of. And I've ever had scenarios like that. And, um, and, and I remember thinking like, if we, I, this person thinks we're dumb, was, 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 was clear. They were, they were trying to take advantage of us. And I was like, if, if we just go along with this and don't fight, uh, is that grace? I had to really think about that. I remember me and Royce talked about it. We prayed about it. And it was like, actually, it's, it's not grace because grace assumes there's a wrong you're choosing not to hold them accountable for. Does that make sense? And so um, we had to decide that we're going to sit down with them. And we said, hey, we see that you're taking advantage of us. And, uh, and we're not going to fight you for everything we could. We have a small ask, but we see what's happening. And we're choosing not to make this a big court case and, and a big situation. Does that make sense? Like we, we said, listen, this is a choice we are making. And it, it, it's called grace. Like we see, what we, we see what you're doing. We know what our rights are. And we're choosing not to use all of our rights. And, and we have good warrant for that because we follow this guy named Jesus who didn't use all of his rights and he extended grace. So we're choosing not to retaliate and give you grace. So here's what I want you to catch. Living at peace is not synonymous with fake nice. It's not synonymous with fake nice. Grace gives space to repent and reconcile. It doesn't act like someone hasn't sinned. What they've done is Okay. Now, that being said, we cannot have a peace, um, again, that is rooted in calling something good that is bad or something bad that is good. But simultaneously, we should not have our peace disrupted because of how we treat the world around us, like in a, in a, in a sinful, negative way, where it's our fault. This text makes it really clear, uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 14. It says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. For the follower of Jesus, persecution is expected and anticipated in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 says, Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Aren't we always surprised? Like, and fiery trial, by the way, is being burned alive, like set on fire in Peter's context. Like, don't be surprised by persecution. If you watch the news, man, Christians are always surprised. Pa, right wing, pa, always surprised. Jesus himself adds this in John chapter 15. He says, remember the word I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name because they don't know the one who sent me. Christian, if you never experience persecution, it could be that it's because it's top secret that you're a Christian. 
And then we have Paul encourage Timothy, a young leader. He had been discipling and mentoring. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 to 12. He says, but you have followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance, along with the persecutions and sufferings that came to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and yet the Lord rescued me from them all. In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, right? That's a promise. You're not going to find it on like a coffee cup, but that, that's a promise. If you want to live a godly life, and I hope you do, that there will be pushback on that in a fallen world. And so persecution is guaranteed for the disciple of Jesus in any culture in which they find themselves. We will be treated poorly because of our faith in Jesus at some point. Now, I'm going to get into this in a second. You shouldn't be like being mistreated all the time. If that's the case, there should be some que- Like I would, I would want to chat about how you're interacting with people. But no doubt what we believe is at odds with any culture. Now, in some cultures, what persecution looks like is very different to ours. Uh, In Karachi, Pakistan, it looks like the threat of gang violence and murder on the daily. In North Korea, it could look like the threat of a labor camp. In uptown San Diego, it likely doesn't look like that. It could look like social ostracization or being slandered by people you thought were friends or not being promoted at work. It could look like being criticized on social media or a stand-up comedian making fun of Jesus during a special you stream. But regardless of what culture you're in, our response to the persecution we face should be the same. Our culture, everyone's offended all the time by everything. And you know what we do? We do outrage. Followers of Jesus, when we're offended, you know what we should do? Gentleness, kindness, graciousness, truth. Gentleness, kindness, graciousness, truth. Quiet strength like Jesus. It's not, it's, it's, it's not weakness. It's strength under control. I'm choosing to be gentle. I'm choosing to not treat you the way that you're treating me. Which leads me to point number three. A lack of peace shouldn't be because of our badness. A lack of peace shouldn't be because of our badness. Um, when we are persecuted, we don't have the right to treat them how they're treating us because they have a different Lord than we do. If they mock us, we don't mock them back. If they try to push us around with politics, we shouldn't turn around and trust in politics. If they try to physically harm us, we shouldn't try to get revenge by physically harming them. When persecuted, we don't become like the culture around us and lose our distinctiveness, our salt, and our light. It's hanging on to Jesus in such a way that they struggle to hate us even though they hate what we believe. They struggle to hate us, even though they hate what we believe. And 1 Peter chapter 3 says, Who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. It's like always have an answer for the hope that's in you. That doesn't mean like have an apologetics answer ready. It's like you're living in such a way that they go, you have a different hope than we do. We treat you a certain way and you treat us loving in in, in response. We're put to shame because 
You know, um, when you give the answer to, you're not yelling at it over a, a megaphone. You're not being disrespectful. You're not all capsing on Instagram. You're doing it with gentleness and respect. And it's just hard to be mad at you. you should be, it should be hard to be mad at you no matter what you believe as a follower of Jesus to the people around you. It's like, man, they believe wild stuff. Nicest person I ever met. So kind, sacrifices for me. Says some pretty thug life truth statements and then loves me in ways that, that people who tell me nice stuff all the time would never love me. But here's the problem. Often it's not our commitment to Jesus that's caused an unbelieving world to hate us. Often with the church, it's been the church's own sin and badness. And by the way, I know we like to hate on the church. The church is you. It's us as individuals who, who collectively make up a corporate church, okay? So here's the thing. It's not persecution when the unbelieving world punishes us for doing what God himself says is wrong. Like when people act like you're being a jerk when you're being a jerk, that's not persecution just because you're saved. Right? If you're a jerk and people treat you like a jerk, um, that is not per persecution. Those are natural consequences for sin. Sin impacts what you're reaping what you have sown. Right? There's that, that cat. Uh, it's just so hard, man. I just hate when pastors are on TV. I've told, said this before. It's always the worst version of a pastor on TV. They're never interviewing like D.A. Carson and Tim Keller. Like they never, they lose those numbers. I don't know why. Um, but they're talking to the guy that was like, if you want to wear a mask, you're out of my church. Get out of here, whatever. It's just like, all right, man. But then he's, he's calling, uh, the health department wrote fines and he's calling it persecution. It's like, you can't have it both ways, man. And it's not, it's, it's nothing in the Bible about wearing a mask at church. Nothing. Matter of fact, in some persecuted nations today, people wear disguises on the way to church and cover their faces. Um, when Christian leaders were downplaying Donald Trump making jokes about sexual assaults, doing like the locker room talk thing, and then got called out for being hypocrites, that's not persecution. That's, you defended what was indefensible for power, and you got called out on it. That's not persecution. Jesus wouldn't be like, yeah, man, love that joke. Access Hollywood tape, man, I loved it. No, man, it's indefensible. Like not getting into who you voted for. You could have voted for Donald Trump for a myriad of reasons. But to defend what is indefensible is indefensible. When Christians are mean and unreasonable, when they say harsh things about LGBT people, when we're living in a hypocritical way, when we're demanding special treatment, Jesus gave up his rights. We're screaming about rights. Like we're more informed by like America than the New Testament. One of the lines that killed me, man, people I love were saying it too, and I had to correct them. They're like, marijuana dispensaries and abortion clinics are open, but the church can't be open. It's persecution. Like, dude, I don't know any doctor's offices where 100 people are in a room singing for an hour. Like, just think about how stuff can, right? If NBA games and concerts were happening, I'm with you. But things that are similar aren't happening. So stop saying it's persecution. So unhelpful. When real persecution hits, it's going to get wild. If there, I promise you, there were concerts happening, games happening, movie theater, whatever. I'd be like, all right, like I'm, I'm right? A concert's a pretty good, Right? And so when unbelieving people respond strongly to stuff like that, please don't pull out the persecution card because that isn't what that is. That's not living in peace as much as it's up to you. Yelling all the time, making a bunch of demands. 
We need to humble ourselves and apologize and ask for forgiveness when we sin against an unbelieving world. We need to model people who believe in a gospel that says that they are sinners who fail. But there are times when it's not our fault and it's genuine persecution. Again, we just saw that. This is promised to us. What do we do when it's genuine persecution? What do we do then? And Paul finishes his teaching in verses 20 to 21 that we'll look at more in depth next week by saying this. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. This leads to my final point today. When the badness of others disrupts our peace, our response to them should be grace. It should be grace. We're called to treat people in a gentle, gracious way. Again, it's not weakness. It's strength under control, just like Jesus on the cross. When they mocked Jesus when he was on the cross, it was not weakness that kept him up there. It was not nails that kept him up there. Like, if you're the son of God, you can come down. He's like, I know, and I'm choosing not to because I love you. I love you more than you love yourself. This is strength and love keeping me up here and grace keeping me up here, not weakness. Um, The Evangelical Church in America has been terrible at this for a while now. Uh, I don't believe it's all or most churches, by the way. I think that's overblown, but it's far too many of them. We are, historically speaking, guys, we're the least persecuted church in the history of the world, and we definitely complain the most at a broad level. I'm not saying you in this church, at a broad level. But some groups have led the way in loving their enemies in other parts of the world and at different times in history. One group of, uh, a couple different groups of people that have been amazing historically have been um, the Mennonite or Anabaptist tradition of the church, uh, as well as the African-American church in America. We have two groups that have done this well historically. Uh, how many of you guys know who Dirk Williams is? Any, big, any Dirk Williams fans in the house? Dirk Williams? You should know about him, all right? Uh, he, he's, he, was, he lived in the 1500s in the Netherlands, and he was an Anabaptist man. This is Dirk Williams right here. Give it up for Dirk Williams, you guys. I'm serious. Honor this man. Dirk Williams was an uh, Anabaptist leader. Uh, Anabaptist just meant that you, uh, they thought that you should be baptized after you put your faith in Jesus, uh, not as a baby, and not by the country you were in. Because there was a false teaching in Europe at the time that, that often would say that countries had their own churches. And it was like to be from Sweden was to be a Christian. They're like, that's whack. That's not what the New Testament teaches. You got to repent. And for that crazy view that not being a citizen of a nation doesn't make you a Christian and you need to put your faith in Jesus before you're baptized, um, he was arrested. And what he did was uh, he escaped from prison. He was living in a, a, a um, a prison, uh, it says this, uh, he escaped using a rope uh, made out of knotted rags. Using this, he was able to climb out of the prison and into the frozen moat. Uh, moat's rough. Frozen moat is terrible. A guard noticed his escape and gave chase. Williams was able to traverse the thin ice of a frozen pond, the Hundegat, because of his lighter weight after subsisting on prison rations. He'd been eating bad food for a minute. He's a little thinner. However, the pursuing guard fell through the ice and yelled for help. And what Dirk does is he comes back for him and pulls him out. 
which means, by the way, he gets arrested. By the way, this guy's like, let's just let Dirk go. And his superior said, nope, he escaped. We're, we're taking him. Um, he's now going to be executed. And Dirk was executed. But he loved an enemy in a moment in a way that everyone pays attention. There's a ton of story. We have this story because a ton of people, even that were in power, persecuting them. We're like, this is crazy. Like, you know, they actually had a point where they were, gonna, they were supposed to burn him alive. And they chose to change the execution method at the last minute because they couldn't. They just couldn't torture, a, like, a good dude in their eyes. So like, we, we're supposed to be mad at you. We're struggling here. Like, we should make it really awkward for persecuting people to persecute us. Uh, one author describes how some Anabaptists, uh, by the way, uh, the, the Anabaptists, like, over, like, 200 years, some of them become the Amish. And uh, Amish have a lot of wild stuff going on, uh, but they've maintained uh, the posture of nonviolence and love of enemy that Jesus taught. And it says, uh, in the fall of 2006, a Pennsylvania milk truck driver named Charles Carl Roberts IV burst into a one-room Amish schoolhouse and opened fire on a classroom of girls, killing five and severely injuring five more. After this, he turned the gun on himself and took his own life. In a suicide note, Mr. Roberts confessed to multiple things in the past that he hated about himself, and uh, the second uh, was the memory of losing his own daughter, who had died nine years previously. The loss of his child led Mr. Roberts to also confess in his note that he hated God and people who believed in God. About a week later, uh, this guy's a funeral. It says there were two groups of people in attendance at his funeral. The first was the expected group, his family and, and, and friends of his family who sat somber and shocked over what Mr. Roberts had done. The second was a group of about 30 men and women and children from the Amish community whose daughters Robert had murdered and injured. Commenting on the series of events, nearby sociologist and college professor Donald Crable remarked that the most powerful demonstration of the depth of Amish forgiveness was when members of the Amish community went to the killer's burial service. Several families, Amish families who had buried their own daughters just the day before were in attendance and they hugged the killer's widow and hugged uh, members of the killer's family. It was also reported that the Amish community had donated money to cover expenses, including funeral costs for the killer's widow and three children. Then as would be the case for any community after enduring such horrific loss, the Amish returned home where they would be better able to concentrate on the work of their own healing. So when you're persky, don't pretend like it doesn't hurt. But you're not making, you're not doing the things that they have done to you. What these, men and women, uh, what these men and women did, by the way, wasn't saying that what was done to them was okay. As a matter of fact, if, if uh, he had lived, they would have advocated for a life sentence because uh, Anabaptists don't believe in the death penalty. But they would have wanted to keep him from injuring other people. But by showing up that day, they said, we're going to treat you with a grace in, in your family, with a grace you don't deserve. We're going to extend a love that does not make sense. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 47, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. 
Just think about, again, politics right now and just the sinful nature of humanity. It's like, I'll, I'll watch their back if they watch. If they're like me, I'm for them. If they're different than me, I don't love them. He goes, man, everyone does that. You don't need Jesus to do that. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same. He says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. This is so countercultural and so different. How do we do this? Where do we find the strength and the power to do this? And it's only when we remember and experience and live in the fact that Jesus gave us grace when we ruined the peace of this world, that we can give others a grace they don't deserve. It is supernatural, so it requires a supernatural power. And the gospel is supernatural power. It's fire. It's the Greek word's dunamis, power. One of the most beautiful accounts of someone experiencing the grace of Jesus and then giving that grace away happened in the life of uh, pastor and civil rights activist John Perkins. I think we have a picture of him. Uh, give it up for John Perkins too, everyone. Seriously, come on. We're honoring some saints today, you guys. We're kicking it old school. I like what we're doing. John Perkins was an African-American pastor from Mississippi who both proclaimed the gospel and fought for civil rights. Uh, he has been beaten and tortured. His brother was killed by a corrupt Mississippi sheriff. He was on the front lines of the oppression of the Jim Crow era in Mississippi. And he described his encounter with a hate-filled police officer and then his encounter with Jesus that followed it. He says this, he said, I began to see with horror how hate could destroy me destroy me more devastatingly and suddenly than any destruction I could bring on those who had wronged me. I could try and fight back violently as many of my brothers had done, but if I did, how would I be different from the whites who had hated me? And where would hating get me? Anyone can hate. The whole business of hating and hating back, it's what keeps the vicious circle of racism going. The Spirit of God worked on me as I lay in that bed. An image formed in my mind, the image of the cross, Christ on the cross. It blotted out everything else in my mind. This Jesus knew what I had suffered. He understood and he cared because he experienced it all himself. This Jesus, this one who had brought good news directly from God in heaven, had lived what he preached Yet he was arrested and falsely accused like me. But even more than that, he was nailed to rough wooden planks and killed. Killed like a common criminal. At that crucial moment, it seemed to Jesus that even God the Father himself had deserted him. The suffering was so great, he cried out in agony. He was dying. But when he looked at that mob that had lynched him, he didn't hate them. He loved them. He forgave them. And he prayed God to forgive them. Father, forgive these people, for they don't know what they are doing. His enemies hated, but Jesus forgave. I couldn't get away from that. The Spirit of God kept working on me until I could say with Jesus, I forgive them too. And by the way, forgiveness is a wild process, and we're going to get into it next week. It's an in-depth process, but it's still real. I'll keep reading. I promised him, I promised Jesus, that I would return good for evil, not evil for evil. And he gave me the love I knew I would need to fulfill his command to me of love your enemy. Because of Jesus, God himself met me and healed my heart and mind with his love. 
I knew then what Paul meant when he wrote, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor power, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of Christ Jesus our Lord. The Spirit of God helped me to really believe what I had so often professed, that only in the love of Jesus is there any hope for me or for those I had once worked so hard for. After that, God gave me the strength and motivation to rise up out of my bed and return to Mendenhall and spread a little bit more of his love around. Oh, I know man is bad, depraved. There's something built into him that makes him want to be superior. If the black man or any other man had the advantage, he'd be just as bad, just as bad as the white man in these circumstances. So I can't hate the white man. The problem is spiritual, black or white. We all need Jesus. It's a profound, mysterious truth Jesus' concept of love overpowering hate. I may not see its victory in my lifetime, but I know it's true. I know it's true because it happened to me. On that bed, full of bruises and stitches, God made it true in me. He washed my hatred away and replaced it with a love. I felt strong again, stronger than ever. What doesn't destroy me makes me stronger. Again, I know it's true because it happened to me. But guys, the world is starved for enemy love. The world is starved for supernatural grace. The world is starved for healthy justice and true mercy. The world is starved for people who don't return evil for evil. What I want to do is remind us of the fact that Jesus, he didn't, he, didn't give, he didn't give evil back for evil. He gave us the greatest good in the face of our evil. So I'm going to go into pray into that right now. Jesus, I thank you that you did not treat us as we deserved. We disrupted the peace Think about that one book that, that calls sin the vandalism of shalom, that we destroyed peace in this world as it ought to be as humans, that we have consistently, at times systematically, and over and over again in all of our relationships, from micro to macro, from the small to the big, our sin has made this world not what it should be, not even close to what it should be. You'd offered us peace and life, and we chose enmity and death. But you didn't give up on us. You moved towards us. And you were honest with us. You weren't, you weren't pretending. You weren't sweeping stuff under the rug. You weren't pretending that what we did was okay. But you said, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. I'll pay the debt. I'll make forgiveness and reconciliation possible. I'll treat you better than you deserve. And that's what you did for every single one of us who have any sense of self-awareness. And so Jesus, we thank you that you laid down your life to, to die for us. That no one made you lay your life down. That's what you said. You said, no one takes my life from me. I choose to lay it down. You were not weak, you were strong. But you were strong by being weak.
by choosing weakness. You were strong in, in choosing gentleness. You were strong in loving enemies that did not deserve your love. And so, Lord, as we take communion, would you remind us in a fresh way through your spirit that you offer us grace when we violate your peace. We violate the peace of our families or our friendships or our schools or our workplaces or our neighborhoods or our family systems or our church where we violate peace through our own sin, God, would you show us the grace that's available to cover that? And then would you empower us to go make those things right? Make us radical lovers, Jesus. Please, please, please. But first show us your radical love. It's your name, it's your name we pray. Amen.